Hey there, Criminalholics. Welcome back. It is your host, Kinsey, here with another brand new episode. Thank you to Desiree from Michigan for suggesting the case this week. If you'd like to suggest a case for us to cover, you can go to our link tree, which you can find in our Instagram bio. You can go on there and fill out a really quick form to share any case that you would like us to hear. We love to hear from you guys. Kenya Monet was a 19-year-old girl who was murdered in Denver, Colorado after leaving a nightclub when she was forced out of the club by a bouncer for being intoxicated. The bouncer made her leave the nightclub with absolutely none of her belongings. She left behind her purse, her wallet, her house keys, and her phone. She was never seen alive again after exiting the bar. Kenya Monet was originally born in Honduras, and she lived there until the age of 12 with her mother. When she turned 12, her and her mom migrated to the U.S. to be able to have a better quality of life. The two of them, after moving to the U.S., settled down in Aurora, Colorado, just outside of Denver. Kenya was one of those girls who was always just a huge social bug, but she had a little bit of trouble when she first moved to the U.S. because Kenya was not able to speak much English. Her family all spoke Spanish, and it was a big adjustment for her. But with Kenya being that very very big social bug who loved being around people and just loved having friends around, she was able to be able to pick up on the English language pretty well. Not long after Kenya's mother arrives in the U.S., she meets a man named Tony. Tony became Kenya's father figure, and this was a big deal to her because growing up, Kenya never had a father in her life. She became extremely close to Tony very quickly, and Tony was always there to take care of her family. It didn't take long for Kenya to start calling Tony dad. Although social life was very important to her, Kenya was also a big family girl. She spent a lot of her time at home with her mother Maria and her stepfather Tony. Maria and Tony eventually gave her a younger sibling named Kimberly, and her and Kim were very close to each other and had a strong sibling bond. Kenya was one of those girls who just yelled at everything she did, and school being one of those. After high school, Kenya went on to a local community college where she majored in broadcasting. It was said that she had a very strong, skilled confidence when it came to public speaking, which is amazing because she came from Honduras not knowing hardly any English and here she is majoring in broadcasting and doing all these public speaking events and she's doing an amazing job. Shortly after enrolling into her local community college, Kenya meets a man named Lewis. The two of them hit it off rather quick and she makes a decision to move out of her family home and get an apartment with Lewis. Even though she was 19, her family was just not concerned because they know how responsible Kenya is and they know that she's going to only make decisions that are, are right for her. After moving in with Lewis, she starts to get more into the partying scene where she's going out to clubs and bars with her friends. Her family, again, is just really not too concerned because they know how responsible she is and that how her major is very important to her in becoming a broadcaster. Kenya, again, is only 19 years old, so she has to acquire a fake ID in order to go out clubbing and going to the bars with her friends. And this is not something unusual that happens at the age of 19. On March 31st, 2011, Kenya had plans to meet up with her friends at a local club in downtown Denver called 24K. This was a very popular nightclub that many people had attended that they have also been at before that they knew very well. Kenya uses her fake ID to get into the 24K lounge. Her and her friends reserve a table in this VIP section. All of them are taking shots, they're drinking cocktails, they're having beers, they're enjoying their time. Kenya is a very tiny girl. She's only 4'11 and maybe around 
around 100 pounds at this time. And as somebody who is small statured myself, I know how quickly that alcohol can hit me when I choose to drink. And that is what happened with Kenya. She's having drinks, she's taking shots, and the alcohol hits her pretty quickly. And her friends start to notice that she's getting a little stumbly when she's trying to walk or when she's out on the dance floor dancing with her friends. Kenya being intoxicated like this did not concern her friends that she was with. This is just what they did. They would go out and drink and party and they would have fun. So Kenya stumbling around the club was not something that was super unusual for when the times that they would go out to these places. As things are continuing to go great at the 24K lounge, Kenya tells her friends that she has to go to the bathroom. She gets up from the table and asks them to watch her belongings. They do not question it. They just are assuming she's going to the bathroom and she's going to be coming right back. When she leaves the table, she leaves behind her purse which held her keys her wallet and her cell phone of course her friends aren't gonna think for two seconds that maybe she's never going to return she walks away from the table and her friends do notice that she is stumbling but again they just assume that she's gonna come right back kenya walks to the bathroom and as she exits the bathroom a bouncer notices that she's stumbling all over the place and he comes up to her and asks her if she's okay. She says yes, but the bouncer is not happy with how intoxicated that Kenya is. So instead of trying to find Kenya's friends or maybe even a boyfriend that she's with, the bouncer makes a really poor decision and kicks Kenya out of the club. It has never been released to the public whether or not Kenya made a scene with this bouncer or maybe she got aggressive and that's why he made the decision to kick her out of the club. But Kenya is a 4'11", 100 pound female who is clearly intoxicated and you're kicking her out of this club with absolutely no belongings or anyone with her. Whether or not Kenya had made a scene or she was getting a little more aggressive, it was just a poor decision on this bouncer's part to kick her out of the club in the middle of the night by herself. This is just a very negligent decision to make on his part. After Kenya is forcibly removed from the club, she's standing outside on the sidewalk by herself just walking around with absolutely no way to contact any of her friends, her boyfriend Louis, or her family. After some time passes, her friends realize that she's not coming back from the bathroom. They start to look around the 24K lounge for her and they don't find her anywhere. After looking around, they start to assume that maybe Kenya had just left the 24K lounge with somebody that she knew. So they decide that they're just going to take her belongings home and that they will hear from her tomorrow. Now, before I go any further, I want to give a little information about the friends that she's currently with this night at the 24K lounge. The friends that she went with are not her typical best friend group that she usually goes with. These are just more recent friends that she has met within the Aurora community. Kenya and her best friends, when they go out to a nightclub or a bar, they always make a pact that nobody is to leave the club or bar without each other or getting some type of like confirmed word that they are safe or they have left the bar with somebody and they're giving each other their locations. And no matter what, they always text each other and say, I made it home safe. These group of friends that she went to the 24K lounge with that night did not have this same type of agreement at all. These were just not her people, I guess you would say. Having this type of agreement and plan with your friends as a female when you're going out is so crucial and it's so important. So the fact that her friends 
did not even really try to make sure that she made it home safe or that she in fact was okay just does not sit right with me at all. Every single time me and my group of girlfriends go out, we always let each other know what our plans are for that night, whether we're together that night or we are separated that night. We always tell each other what our plans are. We always check in with each other. And it's always the rule. Text me when you get home or call me and let me know that you made it home safely. If one of us does not get that I made it home safely text, it's instant panic. The next morning on April 1st, 2011, Kenya's boyfriend Lewis wakes up to a completely empty bed and his phone has no missed calls or texts from Kenya letting him know that she was not planning to come home or that she was safe somewhere with one of her friends and this was very highly unlikely for Kenya. Kenya was always the type of girlfriend who would always stay in touch with Lewis when they were not together. And this was just to let him know that she was safe and if she would be coming home or she'd not be coming home. So that way Lewis would not worry. So when he got up that next morning and saw that his bed was empty, there was no text, no calls, no Snapchats, no nothing from Kenya and it was silent. He immediately knew that something was off and something was wrong. Lewis immediately calls Kenya's younger sister, Kim, because he knows how close the two of them are and that if anybody is going to know where Kenya is, it's going to be Kim. So when he makes a phone call to her younger sister, Kim, and Kim tells him that she has not heard from Kenya, Lewis panics and goes right over to Kenya's parents' house. When Lewis arrives at Tony and Maria's house, he starts to tell them that Kenya never came home last night. She has not made contact with him or Kim, and he doesn't really know who she went out with last night. Her parents think of the one thing that might give them some answers to who Kenya was with last night, and that's turning to Facebook. They go on to Kenya's Facebook. They start tracking down names and posts of people who may have been out with Kenya, and they get several names. They contact the names of the friends that Kenya was with at the 24th. K lounge. They come over to Tony and Maria's house and they return Kenya's belongings. And when they return her belongings, they tell them that Kenya left the 24K lounge. They assumed that she was with somebody they know, and this is what she had left behind, but they had also not heard from her since that night before. Her parents are just upset and sick at their stomach right now at this point because they're trying to figure out why her friends did not make sure that Kenya was safe that night. And they knew for sure that something was wrong because Kenya would never leave her cell phone behind. And not only did she leave her cell phone behind, but she left everything she had, her purse, her wallet, and her house keys. This was not like Kenya. They knew in their gut that something bad had happened to their daughter. With having this bad feeling in their gut, Tony and Maria call the local police department there in Aurora to report their daughter missing. But the police tell them what they tell pretty much everybody when they try to make a police report, that Kenya is likely sleeping off the alcohol somewhere and she would return up shortly and they had to wait 72 hours before they can file this police report. And even though I already know this information and I'm very used to hearing it, every single time I hear them saying you have to wait 72 hours to make a police report just makes my blood boil because there is so much shit that happens within 72 hours of somebody being kidnapped. It's like absolutely crucial during that first 72 hours. 
With the police department telling Kenya's family that there's absolutely nothing they can do to help during that first 72 hours, they take the matters into their own hands. Tony gets onto Kenya's cell phone and he starts going through hundreds of text messages over the last week to try and find any bit of answers of what may have happened to Kenya. But as he's going through there, he's finding just nothing. It was just the typical responsible Kenya and none of the conversations seemed off and he's starting to feel a little hopeless that this phone is going to help them track down Kenya because obviously if they have her cell phone that means they're not going to be able to ping any type of location where Kenya might possibly be but little do they know that having Kenya's phone brings them all the answers that they are going to need as Tony is going through Kenya's phone a text message comes through from an unknown number Tony immediately reads the text and it says hey it's the guy from last night creepy white van just trying to make sure that you made it home safe Travis. Tony calls this number repeatedly, hoping that this person, whoever this is, is going to answer the phone and give them answers as to where their daughter might be. Tony continues to call this phone number over and over, but there's just no answer on the other end. They know now that an unknown male has been involved with their daughter on the night that she went missing, and they cannot just sit around waiting on the police. They print out hundreds of missing persons flyers in the areas where Kenya often frequented. They were hoping that somebody who had seen her on that night would recognize her face and step up to help them get some answers as to who maybe this unknown male is or if they had seen the two of them together. While they are out passing out these flyers, Tony hears his daughter's phone ring and he rushes over to the phone and sees that the unknown number that had texted him that he called multiple times had finally called him back. The man from the unknown number identifies himself as Travis Forbes. He goes on to tell Tony that on the night of the 31st, he saw Kenya walking around outside the 24K lounge. He noticed that she was pretty intoxicated, she was stumbling, and she was talking to a homeless man. And it was pretty chilly out that night. And he walks up to her and asks her if she needed help. Kenya says she does in fact need some help and that she's trying to get to her car, which was parked near another nightclub. Travis continues on to tell Tony that Kenya gets inside his van. They're driving to the location of where her car supposedly is. And when they arrive there, Kenya says her car is no longer there and she's very confused at where her car is. Travis immediately offers to drive Kenya home from the location where her car is supposed to be. He says that Kenya agrees and gives him the address to the apartment where her and Lewis lived. He tells Kenya that he rents out a bakery that is close to where Kenya lives, so he's familiar with the area and has no problem driving her home. While driving over to Kenya's apartment, Travis said that she asked if he could stop at a local gas station to buy some cigarettes. When they pull up to the gas station, Kenya notices that the gas station is closed and she's not going to be able to buy any cigarettes, but she notices out of the corner of her eye that there is a homeless man who is smoking a cigarette. Travis says that Kenya says, I'm going to go over there, ask this guy if I can have a cigarette. She gets out of Travis's van, walks over to the homeless guy, starts talking to him, and she starts smoking a cigarette, and the two of them walk away together. Travis tells her dad, Tony, that this is the very last time he ever saw Kenya. She just walked away with this homeless guy, and from there, he has no idea what has happened. Tony pretty quickly recalls thinking that this story is super suspicious for a few reasons. One of them being that Kenya was not the type to just get into a car with some strange man. 
Two, she's not the type of girl to just walk away with some strange homeless man. Three, Kenya had absolutely no belongings with her. So it didn't seem right that Kenya was asking to get to her car when her car keys were left behind at the 24K lounge. Her wallet was left at the lounge as well. So why would Kenya ask to stop for cigarettes if she had absolutely no money on her to begin with? Tony had it in his gut that all of this story just seemed extremely off. After finishing up his phone conversation with Travis, Tony makes another call to the police and he is now begging and pleading with them to make a police report to start investigating his daughter's disappearance. But the police are just telling him, no, that it's still not been 72 hours. We're not going to file a missing persons report. And hearing this just pisses me off knowing the outcome of this entire situation. After they tell Tony no, they are not going to help him, Tony again takes matters into his own hands and he calls back Travis one more time and he asks Travis, can you please go back through this story and give me all of the details so I can find my daughter? Travis tells Tony that he thinks that they should meet up at the gas station where he last saw Kenya. Tony has no hesitation and he tells his wife that he's going to go meet Travis at the gas station and that he's going to take his 9mm gun with him for safety. Kenya's mom, Maria, was so worried about Tony going down there to meet Travis because... Because they have no idea who Travis is. They think he could be responsible for their daughter's disappearance. And everybody's just so emotionally charged. So Tony going down to the gas station with a gun just has Maria really scared. She tries to block their front door so Tony can't leave. But Tony kind of just pushes her to the side and says, I'm going to find our daughter. Maria makes a conscious decision to call the police to let them know what's happening. She says, my husband is going down there to meet this guy with a gun. I don't know what's going to happen. Can you please go down to the gas station? When Tony arrives at the gas station, the police are already there waiting for him. Tony goes up to the police and tells them what's happening and that he's there to meet Travis to ask him some questions about what may have happened to his daughter. The police officer and Tony walk over to Travis. Tony introduces himself as Kenya's father and Travis does not hold back and he starts retelling the entire story about meeting Kenya that night. As Travis is going through the story, Tony is noticing that Travis looks like a very straight-laced, normal member of society. So he's kind of letting go of that, this guy is responsible for my daughter's disappearance. While Travis is telling all of the details, he seems very concerned for Kenya's safety. So Tony even more lets go of that feeling that maybe this guy is responsible. But by the end of Travis's story, that feeling comes back and not only for just Tony, but the police officer as well says that something is not sitting right with Travis's story. After finishing up his story, the police officer asks Tony to step aside so he can have a few minutes alone with Travis to ask him a few questions. Tony walks over near Travis's white van that he had picked Kenya up in a few nights prior. While Tony is standing next to Travis's van, he notices a very strong smell of bleach. When the officer is all finished asking Travis questions, he kind of waves for the police officer to come over by him. He tells the police officer, don't, you know, look suspicious, but I'm about to tell you something. Please don't let Travis notice. And Tony kind of whispers to the cop that, he smells bleach near Travis's van. The police officer walks even closer over to Travis's van and he looks at Tony and he says, I can smell the bleach too. 
If two people can smell the odor of bleach from standing outside of the car, that's a lot of bleach that had to have been used on the inside of Tony's van. So why are you using that much bleach if you did not have a body in there? The police officer asks Travis if he can take a look in his van, and Travis has no problem letting the police officer open up the back of the van. When the police officer opens up the doors to the back of the van, he notices that that bleach smell is getting even stronger, and the back of the van is completely spotless, and also looks like brand new carpet has been laid down in the back. One thing that really catches the officer's eyes in the van is the fact that the front passenger seat in the front floorboard area is completely covered with trash and it's super filthy. So to the cop, he's wondering why take so much time to clean the back of the van but not the front of your van? And this sticks with the officer, but this is not enough to be able to actually do anything with. So all he does is take a written statement from Travis about Kenya and then he lets him go. Prior to Travis leaving the gas station, he walks over to Tony and he shakes Tony's hand and he says, I hope that you guys are able to find out what happened to your daughter and that she comes home safely. Tony is kind of feeling that this is weird, but maybe he's being sincere. But all of a sudden, Travis breaks out in tears. He is sobbing and all of his body language just changes. Tony is looking at Travis like, why are you crying this heavily about my daughter who you don't know? Travis starts telling Tony, I wish I would have just followed through with what I started and took Kenya home instead of leaving her here at the gas station. I feel like it is my fault that your daughter is missing. After the incident at the gas station happens, the 72 hours after Kenya is missing finally rolls around and her family is able to make a missing persons report. Very shortly after this police report is filed, her story breaks loose all over the media. Her face is on every single news station within the U.S. and even Honduras. Her family goes onto the news and they are begging and pleading for anybody to step forward with answers. Now, before I go any further, remember when I had mentioned that Travis told Kenya on the drive to her car that he worked at a bakery not too far from Kenya's home. This bakery that he worked at was called Debbie's Bakery. Inside Debbie's Bakery is another small bakery behind that original bakery, and he rented out that space to be able to make baked goods. At that specific time, Travis was renting out that spot to be able to make gluten-free granola bars that he was selling to locals in the area. Because Travis was already linked to Kenya, his name was all over every single one of these news outlet stories that they were sharing about Kenya's disappearance. The woman who owns Debbie's Bakery is a woman named Monica. She calls the police and tells them that she knows who Travis Forbes is and that he rents out the bakery behind her shop. She goes on to tell police that she has camera footage of Travis inside the bakery of the same night that Kenya went missing. She tells them, I'm reaching out because when I looked back at this footage, something seemed extremely off about Travis's behavior and the things that he was doing this late at night inside the bakery. She even says that at some point during this recording, Travis completely turns off all of the camera footage, which is something that has never happened before. She felt that all of this camera footage was super suspicious and she wanted to be able to hand it over to the police. 
This camera footage that is turned over to the police shows Travis inside the bakery, pulling a huge white cooler that is completely duct taped shut. He is pulling it on some type of tray table and he's pulling it into the freezer inside the bakery. After Travis places the cooler inside of the freezer, he is then seen on the camera footage taking a bottle of bleach to the back of the building. Seeing this suspicious camera footage, the police bring Travis in for questioning right away. He goes on to tell them the same exact story that he has told about Kenya multiple times, that he saw her outside the 24K lounge, he offered a driver to her car, and when she could not find her car, he offered to drive her home. But on the way home, plans changed when they got to the gas station and she got out and started walking away with the homeless man. He goes on to say that after he left the gas station sometime around 3.30 in the morning, he went over to his girlfriend's house and went to sleep. After he slept, he got up at 8.30 that next morning and he went to work. The police question his girlfriend who completely confirms his story and says that he did in fact go over to the girlfriend's house. The police are once again left at a dead end with Travis now that he has an alibi and he has somebody confirming his alibi. But that alibi would not last long. After sharing this information to the media, multiple people that lived around the bakery stepped forward and said that they saw Travis outside the bakery and that he was taking that white cooler and he was cleaning it out with bleach. After he cleaned out that freezer, all of a sudden a 55-pound barrel just bursts into flames because Travis had set it on fire. When questioned about what the neighbors had said, Travis said that he had some weed inside of the cooler that he was storing and that it had gotten rotten and so he was washing it out of the cooler and that all of the extra marijuana that he had, he was burning in the barrel because he didn't want to get caught with it. The police are just now not buying a single word that Travis has to say, but even with the information that they have, there's still no evidence to be able to hold him, so they have to release Travis back out once more as a free man. Although Travis was let out as a free man again for the second time, the pressure being linked to Kenya's disappearance is just too much for him and it's starting to really get to him, so he decides to leave town. When Travis leaves town, he actually steals one of his friend's cars to head down to Texas. On his way down to Texas, he gets pulled over for suspicion of car theft, and once more, he is brought into custody. While in custody, the police were able to collect a DNA sample from Travis. He was brought into custody the first week of May, and the last week of June, he was finally extradited back to Colorado for Grand Theft Auto. But when he arrives back in Colorado, he once more is let go because his friend drops all of the charges against him. After he was hauled in for this Grand Theft Auto charge, the police start to really look into his background, and it turns out that Travis has a lengthy criminal record. He had been arrested for aggravated battery, assault, and multiple robbery charges. Now that the police have all of this information about Travis, and they are just not convinced that he has nothing to do with Kenny's disappearance, they start a 24-hour surveillance on Travis. During three full days of following Travis around, the police were not really picking up on any suspicious behavior. He continued to do what he always does and go to nightclubs and several different bars. There was an incident where he did get into a screaming match with another person who was attending this bar, but nothing out of the ordinary. So the police finally call off the surveillance, but this would be a major mistake. On July 4th, 2011, just four months after Kenya goes missing, a woman named Lydia Tillman was in town watching the fireworks. After the fireworks show was over at the park, Lydia walks to her home and she does not realize that as she's walking to her home, there had been a man following her the entire way. 
As Lydia arrives home, she is putting the code into the keypad to get inside the front door. A man grabs her from behind, shoves her in the door, and immediately begins sexually assaulting her. As he is sexually assaulting Lydia, he begins hitting her in the face and the jaw as hard as he can. This man is hitting her over and over to the point where he breaks her jaw and some of the blows to her head are almost fatal. Within minutes, Lydia goes unconscious and the man starts pouring bleach on Lydia and sets her apartment on fire. A neighbor of Lydia's calls 911 to report the fire and by the time the fire department arrives, the apartment is completely up in flames. They are trying to hose down the apartment to find out if there's anybody in there. But before they even get the chance to find out if there's anybody inside the fire, on a second story window, a woman who was completely naked comes jumping out of the window and hits the concrete. The fire department rushes over to the woman and they notice that she is still alive and the woman is is Lydia Tillman. Lydia somehow, by the grace of God, was able to regain consciousness and drag herself out of the fire and into the street to be able to save her own life. Before they could get Lydia to the hospital to be able to ask her what happened, Lydia suffers a really horrible stroke and put into a medically induced coma. But because Lydia fought so damn hard to save her own life, she actually got DNA from her attacker underneath her nails from fighting back. As police are investigating the attack on Lydia, one thing really stands out to them, and that was the use of bleach. When they think about bleach being used on Lydia, one person comes to mind, and that is Travis Forbes. The police restart that surveillance on Travis because the fact that he used bleach in Kenya's disappearance, and now there's another woman who's been attacked and bleach was poured on her, this is just not settling right with them. They start to track Travis's every move, and while he is in in town they see him out at a bar and he's talking to a young female the cop does not allow this to happen and he approaches travis when he is with that girl when he approaches travis he asks for his identity and he gives him a false name but the police already know who this is and so he considers this extremely suspicious as he is questioning travis the woman starts to just walk away and travis has to be let go because there's no other suspicious behavior after Travis leaves the vicinity where the cop was, he shows up a little while later and he's wearing completely different clothes and he has on a baseball cap. The cop knows that this is really suspicious, so he keeps even a closer eye on Travis. Later in the night, Travis is spotted yet again with another woman, and the cop is not going to let this happen because he is so worried about her safety. The same cop intervenes, and he decides that he is going to arrest Travis for giving a false name, and he would make a really great decision. Although this would be just a misdemeanor charge against Travis, the cop feels that he's making the best decision for the local community because at least those women would be safe from Travis for just one more night. So hours goes by and Travis is about to bail out of jail. And right before that bond comes through to be cleared, they get a hit on the DNA match from Lydia Tillman's attack. This DNA match comes back and says that the DNA that they found underneath Lydia's fingernails belonged to Travis Forbes. While in custody on these charges, the police question him about what happened that night to Lydia, and he tells them he will tell them everything if they can make a deal. This deal was that he would not only tell them what happened to Lydia, but he would also tell them exactly what happened to Kenya Monet. He tells police that he will tell them what happened, 
under two conditions. One, that when he is booked into prison, he is not labeled as a registered sex offender. And two, that they are not to seek out the death penalty during his trial. They take the deal and he starts telling them exactly what happened to Kenya. He tells police that on the night of March 31st, 2011, him and his friend were outside the 24K lounge and they saw Kenya walking around the club just very intoxicated. They went up to her and asked if she needed some help. She said that she did. She was just trying to get home to her boyfriend. Travis tells police that him and his friend were trying to find her a cab. They called. There was none available. So Travis offers to drive Kenya home. Him, his friend, and Kenya all get into his van. He drops his friend off first, and he starts to head over to Kenya's house. On the way over to Kenya's house, he stops the van, and he starts sexually assaulting Kenya. Kenya immediately fights back, trying to get Travis off of her, but Travis says he freaked, worrying that she was going to get away from him. So he starts strangling Kenya. He says as he is on top of her, strangling her, he can just watch the life leaving her eyes. He says that after he realizes he has killed Kenya, then he stuck her inside the cooler that was in his van and took her inside of the bakery. After he put Kenya inside the freezer in the bakery, he went outside and started burning all of her belongings in that barrel. After putting the cooler inside of the freezer, he says that he goes out to the back of the building to the barrel and sets it on fire to get rid of any evidence that would link him to Kenya. He goes on to tell police in this very eerie interview that he wanted to bury Kenya by some water or by a lake or some really pretty trees. The police ask him why and he's just sobbing and he says, because if somebody killed me, I would want to be buried in a beautiful place. It is just so bone chilling listening to him make this statement. The day after Travis gives his statement about what he did to Kenya, he takes them out to the location where he buried her body. After a few hours of digging, they do find Kenya Monet buried under some cottonwood trees. Travis Forbes was officially arrested and charged with the murder of 19-year-old Kenya Monet. He was given life in prison for her murder, plus 48 years for the attack on Lydia Tillman. This entire situation could have been avoided in so many ways, and it really starts with Kenya being forced out of the bar on her own that night, knowing she was heavily intoxicated. As a bouncer working at a bar, they should be educated on what to look for when it comes to dealing with their customers, whether it is a female or whether it is a male. They should be taught how to handle a situation better because I do believe that all of this could have been avoided if she was not forcefully pushed from that bar, intoxicated as she was, and with no cell phone, no wallet, no means to be able to take care of herself. It is not Kenya's fault that this happened to her. She should have been able to go out and drink and have fun with her friends and not worry about being kicked out of a bar and then kidnapped. They really dropped the ball. Not only was the ball dropped when it came to Kenya being forcefully removed from the nightclub, but the ball was also dropped when it came to reporting Kenya's disappearance. Those three days were so crucial. Those three days could have meant several different things. And one of those could have been that Lydia was never attacked. 
Although some say maybe that was a blessing in disguise because it is what brought Kenya's case to a close. Lydia Tillman did an interview with the news station and she says that she feels like what happened to her was meant to happen to be able to bring Kenya's family some peace and some closure. She walks around daily with a ring on that belonged to Kenya and she says that she feels so close to her and she wishes that things could have been different. But she is so thankful that she helped bring her killer to justice. Crimeaholics, if you haven't already, I highly encourage you to join a Crimeaholics podcast discussion group on Facebook. You can follow us on Instagram at crimeaholics.podcast or you can follow me personally at this is Kenzie, K-E-N-Z-I underscore. Crimeaholics, as always, be aware and take care. The holiday season is right around the corner, and with it comes gift giving, lots of great food, and of course, those dreaded holiday portraits. As somebody who suffers with adult acne, there has been so many times where my family wanted to take Christmas photos, and I was just dreading those because I knew how badly broken out my face was. While we can control other aspects of the holidays, we can make sure you feel confident and camera ready for your family photos. That's why we're excited to partner with Apostrophe. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. Whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you with the skin you're in. Apostrophe is an online platform that connects you with an expert dermatology team to get customized acne treatment for your unique skin. Through Apostrophe, you can get access to oral and topical medications that use clinically proven ingredients to help clear acne. Simply fill out an online consultation about your skincare goals and medical history. Then just snap a few quick selfies and a board-certified dermatologist will help you create your initial customized treatment plan. Apostrophe offers access to prescription medications for all types of acne, from hormonal acne to facial acne and even back, chest, and butt acne. Treat breakouts from head to toe. As someone who has their face out in the media quite often, it is so important for me to try and reduce my adult acne. That is why I switched to Apostrophe. As a single full-time working mom, sometimes it's impossible for me to be able to go to an in-person appointment. So with Apostrophe, I loved that I was able to submit my exam online and be able to get my own treatment plan that was tailored to my skin. I was like a kid on Christmas when my Apostrophe order came in the mail. When I opened up the box, I loved that it had a cute little postcard and it came with stickers to be able to customize my own bottle. And the best part is, is I didn't even have to wait in line at the pharmacy to get my medication. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash crimeaholics when you use our code crimeaholics. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash crimeaholics and click get started. Then use our code crimeaholics at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you to Apostrophe for sponsoring this episode. 